Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. What's the 411? You're tuned in to 411 Teen, a weekly program for teens, families, and other interested folks. 411 Teen provides a forum to examine and discuss various issues and events that confront, intersect, and sometimes interrupt our daily lives. Today's kids are always plugged in. They're born and raised on the Internet. They are the Generation Z or Zoomers, born between 1997 and 2012. Researchers say Generation Z are spending more time on electronic devices and less time on reading books. This is the first generation that has grown up with the access to the Internet and portable digital technology from a young age. The oldest Generation Zer recently turned 25. This edition of 411 Teen talks with Dr. Devorah Heitner. Her new book is Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. The book shows parents how to help tweens and teens navigate identity, privacy, boundaries, and reputation in their digital world. Devorah joins us on 411 via the Zoom platform from Chicago. I'm Dr. Liz Hollyfield. Devorah, welcome to 411 Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, I'm looking forward to talking with you. Why did you write about Generation Z, the plugged-in generation? What was the? Well, I have my own teenager, oh. and so I've been watching him and his friends grow up, and I love this generation. But also, I've actually been researching about kids and media long before I became a parent. I wrote my master's thesis about the anti-racist project of Sesame Street, and. I used to teach a kids media culture class to my students at DePaul University and at Lake Forest College. Mm -hmm. And I got really curious about the differences that my students who at the time around 2010 and 2000, between like 2008 and 2012, they were like the early smartphone users. They were sort of the MySpace kids who became the Facebook kids early on. And the differences between them and the kids that I had them interview, because I would have my students do interviews with third graders at a local elementary school. And we just found that even that micro generation of the difference between like a nine and a 19 year old, even mm -hmm. though they could literally be siblings, was enough of a difference in technology that the, the 19 year olds were kind of blown away by what the nine year olds could do. So that made me really curious. And then when I became a parent in 2009, I started speaking and writing on these issues and sharing the research with parents to try to help decrease the panic because a lot of parents were very nervous about what this all means for our kids. And then I wrote a book called ScreenWise and I did more speaking and a lot of people said, okay, okay, Devorah, but you know, I'm, I'm reassured about screen time. I understand that we want to think about quality over quantity and that we want to mentor more than we monitor, but what about this reputation stuff? What about, you know, what if my kid posts something that gets them in big trouble or they can never undo? You know, I'm glad that every dumb thought I had in middle school or high school wasn't <laughs> shared with the world. Mm -hmm. um, things can get really tricky and complicated. So I think 
I, I realized there was a need to write about the ways kids were navigating reputation and privacy. And then I also started to learn about the ways kids are being surveilled by their parents, mm -hmm. by school in terms of grading apps and geo trackers. So I ended up really writing a, a much more comprehensive book about kids and privacy and reputation than I even set out to write. Well, I, I read your book, and although I know it really was um, intended for parents, I think everyone who interacts with or works with teens or tweens or young adults can benefit from it because it gives an enhanced insight concerning this population, whether it's a teacher, counselor, administrator, parent. Um, why is so little known, or it seems to be at this point, so little known about this generation. Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I think they're we know a fair amount about them because they're posting about themselves. Oh. And I'm not I'm not sure I agree that there's not very much known about them. I mean, I I think that, you know, with the pandemic, of course, they were kind of yeah. quiet for a while. Maybe we we missed a few years of them in school in some places, but I think we we know a fair amount. Okay. All right. Well, you have many years under the belt of working directly and and you had living with Generation Zers. Um, what would you identify as their their outstanding characteristics in growing up in, in a world where nearly every moment of their lives can be shared and compared and examined and Criticize. It's a lot. I mean, I'll <laughs> say that some of them do really, you know, it's a little bit of a head trip to grow up where you could become an influencer or get famous. So, you know, it seems like fame is like around the corner. It's so accessible, even though, of course, it's not. But it there is, you know, a way that young people have access to more of a platform to share their, their thoughts or their creative work than we had maybe growing up. So I think that's one of the cool things about this generation is they are really interested in sharing and connecting and they're very global. They're very connected with their peers around the world. It's a very diverse generation. I think that, you know, their whole take on the old school ways of thinking about things like gender binaries is so different. They're just in a different place than we were. So I think we can learn a lot from Gen Z and really you know, also think about how we can support them, given that the world that they're coming up into has, you know, had environmental catastrophe, has mm -hmm. has pandemic, has, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of violence. Like, I think we need to help them because it would be easy for them to kind of spend time on their phones learning about this world and then be like, wow, this is pretty bad. Well, technology um, over the years has influenced how how people communicate and interact. I mean, but the baby boomers had television, and then I guess Generation X grew up with with the computer revolution, and millennials um, came of age with the internet explosion, and now we have Z, and and with Z they're always connected. They got everything: the mobile devices, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, the Wi-Fi, the high band with cellular devices, the social media. I mean, and it goes on and on. They are always um, involved in the technological environment. How? What have your observations told you or indicated in how they communicate? Do you see any difference in their communication since they do have access to all of these um, 
all this technology. I think one of the things that adults can help kids with is to know when and how to use digital tools versus in person. I think kids often want to lean into the digital tools because that's the most familiar to them. And kids start texting almost when they can type. I mean, mm -hmm. if they don't have their own device. They're texting on school devices or using their parents' devices. So I, I think what's tricky is knowing when, for example, if I'm texting someone and things are getting difficult or I'm getting into a conflict or a misunderstanding, knowing that I can shift into an in-person or a phone mm -hmm. conversation to try to work that out. And that's something we really need to help kids with because they may not know that that's an option or that might be a better solution mm -hmm. than continuing to text or, you know, screenshotting the text to show it around, to show mm -hmm. other people how wrong that person is or some of the things that kids will do that maybe aren't such a great way to resolve conflict. And when I directly ask kids, because I go into schools all the time and I'll ask kids, hey, why, uh, why is it so easy to get into a fight on text? They know, they'll say, oh, it's because you don't have, you know, the person's facial expression or vocal tone. So they do understand why it's so okay. easy to have a misunderstanding, but they don't always have like a solution in mind. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is really helping them to maybe establish ground rules and establish boundaries because I th at least what I one of the the points that I got from your book is if if they had those ground rules and they knew they could establish boundaries the difficulties that they may encounter and that parents may encounter might be allayed because um, you can avoid that if you have some clear boundaries and you feel comfortable and you know how to, to reach them and you've got some ground rules as to how far to go or what to do and what not to do. I mean, do you think that that is an important aspect? Absolutely. Or at least, I mean, I think we can't avoid all conflict, but we can resolve no. things more quickly if no we have some strategies. Like if I know that I'm in a group text and maybe mm -hmm. it might work better to try to go to a one-on-one -on -one conversation to try to work something out. Or if I'm in a text conflict or an email misunderstanding, if I know that talking in person or on the phone might help me work something out. These are strategies we can use. The challenge is kids are only seeing their parents kind of thumb out their lives on their phone. They're not listening. Like we listened to our parents mm -hmm. on the phone and we actually heard how they dealt with certain situations, including just how they got off the phone, how they closed out conversations, maybe how they dealt with conflict, right? We learned a lot from listening to our parents on the phone and our kids are watching us thumb out our texts, but they're not, they're not seeing what we're saying. They're not seeing us decide not to text someone and wait and deliver the news in person because it's kind of complicated or emotional, for example. Mm -hmm. So as much as we can, we should actually spell out those decisions for our kids and say, hey, I'm going to wait until we see grandma to share that news because it's kind of big news. And, you know, I don't know how she's going to respond. And mm -hmm. so I think it might be better to tell her in person so we can kind of be with her when she processes this information or whatever, versus just doing it because we make a lot of decisions all the time on the fly around choices around communication with people. But our kids aren't necessarily in on that. Yes, I would strongly agree with that. Um, and I wanted to also get your take on what happens when parents and teachers are intruding in on their conversations. And by that, I'm thinking about um, what's your position on these classroom apps that, that monitor children, elementary children's behavior 
Um, do you feel that that's a good thing or it's a bad thing? Um, is that something that maybe we should consider, not consider? Where do you sit on that? And I, I think the and classroom I want to tell you, we're going to take a, a break. Lot, right. So they're a little bit big brother. So what we're talking about is apps like mm -hmm. for little kids, like Class Dojo that mm -hmm. send parents notification exactly. about kids' behavior. And then for older kids, it's the grading portals. You know, it's your Schoology, Power School, mm -hmm. Infinite Campus, Canvas. There's a bunch of them. But Deborah, most kids hold, in K-12 education. This is one of those moments where I was going to say, hold your thoughts. Um we need to take a brief break and then okay. we'll, we'll return. I'm talking with Dr. Devorah Heitner. She shares her expertise on the intersection of all things tech and family. Our conversation will continue after a brief break. Just tuning in, the program is 411-TEEN, Dr. Devorah Heitner, author of Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World, joins me. Her work has been featured in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, just to name a few. Devorah, would you like to continue your thoughts? I had to rudely so interrupt you. School, <laughs> school apps, and like I was saying, for little kids, there's apps that report on behavior, and bigger kids, there's apps that share out about grades and you know they're probably invented with good good intentions but for a lot of families they can cause conflict because it's giving parents almost too much of a window into their kids school day and it's honestly really nice for kids to have some separation in the school day both so parents can actually focus on other things right like how am I supposed to work if I'm getting the minute by minute update about my kids right. school day while they're away from me and more importantly, my kids should have some ownership over their school day. It shouldn't be like if I'm getting pinged that, you know, my kid didn't raise their hand before speaking, that that should be something that's kind of between them and their mm -hmm. teacher. And yeah. over relying on communicating with parents can really undermine the relationship. And with grading apps, it can also take some of the responsibility away from the students if kids know that, you know, their mom can see inside or their dad can see inside of, you know, Canvas and be constantly reminding them about homework or assignments that are due, when are they going to learn to check or, you know, write it down or have another plan for right. keeping track of their work? Well, so I, I think it gets really tricky with these apps. And, mm -hmm. and teachers tell me that they also can... Um, teachers tell me they also can, can get, find their relationships become really nagging and transactional when those apps are used heavily in schools because if you know okay I just need 0 0.00375 more to get that a then I instead of writing to the teacher and say how can you teach me more about or where can I learn more about this topic we're learning about together you know where can I learn more about you know evolution or where can I learn more about the civil war you're saying how can I raise my grade by 0.375 and mm -hmm. that's just not an appealing email to get from a teacher. It feels very transactional. I totally agree. But I think that this is a topic that often comes up because so many parents, it appears to me that there are a lot of parents that keep tabs on their, on their kids' online activity. I mean, there was a recent, um, I guess, 
uh, research done, I can't, I think it was Pew um, Research Center, that said more than, what was it, 60% of parents, of teens, have checked their teen's web history. I mean, that's, that's, Oh, to me, I find that really very intrusive. And nearly half have pulled through their kids' call call logs or through their texts. And then I think it was a, a third um, know the password for at least one of their kids' social media accounts. And, you know, is is this type of supervision or is it supervision or is it spying a good de- idea and where does trust I mean, it's, it's so tricky because, mm-hmm. you know, the internet is not a great place for kids in some ways, right? You've got pornography and other things. And I think we do want to be proactive and talk to kids about the kinds of content we don't want them to engage with. So it's not that I think we should just hand, you know, a 10-year-old a phone or a computer and walk away oh, and hope sure. for the best. I, I want to be clear about that. I do think the kids need proactive mentorship, guidelines, you know, all of that, and and really conversations about what kinds of information is good to look up online and what is not. At the same time, I think if we're reading our kids' text messages or geo-tracking them, that can be very invasive and is probably more information than we want and may may even be distracting in some ways from having a relationship with them. Well, you emphasize in your book that parents should move from, from monitoring and surveillance to mentoring and, and shift their focus on what was the consequences um, and to building character. And I think that that's, at least that's what I basically mm-hmm. hear you saying. Um, yeah. Would you elaborate on this? I mean, would you offer some recommendations or suggestions as to what parents to, can do to accomplish this? Well, I think parents can be in conversations with their kids even before they reach the next tech milestone. So if your kid, you know, for example, doesn't have a phone yet, you know, you can, as they say, like, oh, I want a phone, you can start to talk about, well, okay, let's talk about text. Like, what will you do if you're in a group text and someone says something mean about another kid or a teacher? In other words, we can start having conversations with our kids about, like, what are the tough decisions and experiences we might have in these spaces before we even kind of get our kids there Uh so that we can get a sense of what is their judgment. And we can ask kids things like, have you ever met somebody who's the way they share or post doesn't really align with how they act in person. Uh And those are good conversations to have because you'll understand your kid's judgment, what they're thinking, what some of their friends are doing. Um, And that makes more sense than probably trying to read every single thing that they post and, you know, track every text message they send because a lot of their references and things you won't even understand. So that I would rather parents spend that energy talking with kids, listening to kids. What do you see people doing on TikTok? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? You know, if they're asking for an app like TikTok, you know, I would ask them like, what, what's compelling and exciting about that app to them? Devorah, as we talk about your book, Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World, would you share with the listening audience exactly where they can Uh, purchase or access your book and how absolutely anywhere books are sold so amazon bookshop barnes and noble your local independent bookstore and your local public library these are all places where you can get growing up in public what would you identify as the benefits 
of being plugged in 24-7? Because there are some benefits, you know, we... we uh, I mean, I think 24-7 is a lot, even yeah, well, for adults. Yeah, well, that's, that's in the gross exaggeration. Okay. And having, right, having yeah. facility with it, being good at it, mm -hmm. is it, it is empowering for kids. They know where to find information. If they want to solve a problem, they might be able to look up some solutions or ideas. You know, we have a lot of creative kids sharing their ideas and sharing their artwork and their and their creative expression online, their music and all the all kinds of things. So mm -hmm. I, I think there's a lot of good stuff going on for young people. And it's kind of an exciting time in some ways to be a young person, but it's also a scary time. And there's also a lot of news and information that we may want to help our kids process. We may want to help them understand. So I think that we also want to model a healthy relationship with our own technology in front of our children and make sure that we're using it in a balanced and thoughtful way. Do you have suggestions that you can offer to parents for, oh, empowering advice, uh, is another way of saying it, um, on how they can raise resilient kids today? Because I think parents are... are you know, they're, they're pulling their hair out. Yeah, it's been a tough <laughs> few years. I think it's really important that we model empathy and that we also model, you know, sticking up for things that we believe in. And if there are things going on in our communities or in our country that we are dismayed by or concerned about, we should definitely talk with our kids about why. And especially when they're absorbing content on the internet, which we know like some of that content can be hateful and problematic. Uh -huh making sure that they know, hey, if you see somebody being blamed for something or a group of people being targeted or disparaged, that's something to be very suspicious of. Like, why, why is that happening? What's going on? And if there's something you don't understand or you're not sure if it's true, definitely come talk to me. I think we need to make sure our kids know that there is some mis misinformation out there and that if they need help figuring out if something is trustworthy, you know, coming to an adult like a librarian or a parent can be very helpful. How does the, um, in your opinion, where you sit, how does the internet affect childhood development? I mean, at what age do you recommend young kids become exposed and, and, and plugged in? Ideally, they're doing it with us from a young age. I mean, I think we don't need to get, you know, necessarily toddlers on the internet. I think that they are good to play apps that are more native to the environment on the phone or the app uh -huh. or the iPad or the tablet. And as they get older, we want to teach them. I think a lot of kids expect everything to be, you know, connected to the internet. They're like confused when the tablet won't work on the plane the same way it works at home. So we need to kind of explain the difference between being connected in a network versus being disconnected. And Ideally, actually, for little kids, they're doing more that's disconnected because the Internet isn't really a great place for, you know, two and three year olds. I would say as kids learn to read, they are going to start to learn to search and we want to teach them how to do it safely. We want to make sure that we're with them, ideally, when we're using they're using the Internet at a mm -hmm. young age and recognize that a lot of the Internet is at least at an eighth grade reading level, too. So, you know, your second grader isn't going to be able to find a ton of things that that are obviously sort of for them in the way that they would, like, say, in the kids section in the bookstore or the library. So just talking to them about what sites are safe for kids, how you use the internet. And then as our kids get older, like for teens, we really want to help them have skills. So, you know, you don't want them to be able to go to a way to college, you know, go away to college and not know how to buy a plane ticket online or research a road trip and plan 
So as you travel with your family while they're in middle school and high school, have them help plan. Mm -hmm. So they're getting involved with how do you research a hotel in a city you've never been to? How do you look it up online and find out how much it costs and what the reviews are? Right. How do you how do you figure out how far you can drive in a day looking at a map or what airport you want to fly into to go to a certain place? These are all skills we want our kids to have. And that's just one example. I mean, we could also have our kids plan a day locally where they look up things to do in, you know, in the city where you live. Um, it's so important to also make sure that kids know how to do email. It sounds so basic because a lot of us are kind of sick of our email, but kids are either not checking their email and missing out on things like college scholarships, or they're not writing very appropriate, thoughtful emails to their teachers. And teachers are kind of appalled sometimes <laughs> by the, you know, what feels like a very rude or a thoughtless email or an email where the kid doesn't sign their name or, you know, ask, have a very clear request. So we just need to work with our kids on, on practicing emails. Well, I know certainly education and, and learning have, have been transformed. In addition, you, do, you know, how we make friends, how we develop friendships, how we maintain friendships, even how we, we spend our, our leisure time. Uh, they got the smartphones and the tablets, as you mentioned, and along with all type of social um, media platforms and messaging apps. Um, what does it feel like? I mean, you have one, you live with one, but what does it feel like to, to grow up connected digitally? I mean, growing up so exciting, but sometimes overwhelming. I do think that kids sometimes get exhausted from all the social labor of having to respond to one another and feeling like it's hard to take a break. So one thing we can do as parents is actually you know, help our kids take breaks and even let them know, let our kids know you can always use me as an excuse, like, oh, my mean parents won't let me, you know, text after 10 o'clock or whatever. Because kids need a break, they need their sleep, they need the balance of having some time off. And they need to get some mentorship on how to decide who to be connected with and what apps to use. And especially even the who to be connected with. I think a lot of kids when they first get a phone, you know, they'll just connect with anybody and we can help them make decisions about, you know, do I actually want to be connected with this person? What's the appropriate way to get somebody's phone number? How do I decide if mm -hmm. I'm going to be connected? Do I have to share information? Do you, you know, we, we want our kids to ask permission before they share pictures of other kids. And we want to treat, teach them some etiquette around all of that as well. What are parents getting wrong? Be, and maybe it's just the, the population I interact with, but it seems to me that parents, not all of them, um, but parents view this new connected generation and more, more inaccurately and more of a negative um, perspective than, than positive. And you've identified a number of positive things and, you know, we'll okay. ask you to identify some more, but what, what, well, parents what are parents often will emphasize the negative in terms of consequences and not focus enough on character because we're so scared that something will happen to our kids mm -hmm. and we're nervous like oh if you post that you won't get into yes. you know, fancy yeah, university right. or our flagship you know state school because you'll get weeded out because you posted the, this bad thing and I think instead of talking about those consequences which in, in a way is telling kids just don't get caught, right? That's kind of the message there. Mm -hmm. What we really want to do is tell kids don't cause harm, right? We need to make sure that kids mm -hmm. don't cause harm. So if something that 
is posted could cause harm. Don't like it. Don't share it. Don't amplify it. Right. And, and definitely don't share something yourself that could cause harm. And I think that is a good thing to remember when we're thinking about what we share, what we post. And it's not about, it's not about getting caught because if we emphasize getting caught, then we're talking about that happens to very few people. Very few people get in big trouble for what they post. Mm -hmm. Most people, even if they do post something bad, you know, or harmful, don't get in trouble. Don't get caught, whatever. Don't experience a lot of consequences, or at least maybe they experience people not trusting them in their immediate circle, but they don't experience sort of a wide consequence because maybe not that many people find out that they posted that. Mm-hmm. And I think for kids, you know, it's, it's obviously better if not that many people find out, but it's also better if they make restitution and repair in the community and at the time that it happens. So if a kid messes up in sixth grade, they should make those repairs in sixth grade. What I don't want to see is someone in their thirties being confronted with something they posted in sixth grade. I'm very glad to hear that. I think of an example of one of the students I have been working with who graduated last year and applied to several schools. Good student, I don't know, uh, 3.9, you know, Kuhn. Um, But she had, in middle school, posted some, some negative comments. And it, these negative comments that were posted maybe four years ago were held against her. At least that's what she was told. I mean, she was, they, the school, two schools identified that they had some problems with some of the comments that she had made. Um, and I thought that was a little extreme. I, I guess they're still posted. You know, once you post, it's out there. If they, you can. Well, you can take things down. I mean, it well, sounds that like maybe, when that I hear about so. stuff like that, I wonder if someone else who was offended mm. shared with that college. I don't that that part of it. I don't know, but I do. Because what know. I think is is really something we should all think about is how can we actually help kids when this stuff happens and not throw them under the bus. And I don't mean to apologize for you know be an mm-hmm. apologist for kids who cause harm. I think. When kids cause harm, they do need to make it right. And they do need to face consequences in their own communities. Again, what I don't want to see is, you know, someone graduating from high school and still addressing what happened in middle school. It should be addressed then and there. Uh And so, and, and communities need to take very seriously when kids post things that are harmful, if they're hateful, they need to assume that it's going on more. Like say a kid uses a slur against a group of people, whether it's a racial slur, a homophobic slur, a uh, misogynist slur, right? Mm-hmm. Any of these things. It's very important that the school takes it seriously, not just that kid, but assumes that other kids may be saying it too. And they check exactly. in with the targeted group to see how they're doing and make sure they're doing an extremely good job, you know, educating the rest of the community about the harm that that can cause. So it's not just that we take this one kid and suspend them and say, okay, our work here is done. I think you have to see that kid as a sign, that 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 post as a sign that it's going on in a wider way. Well, I think another part of it is schools are unclear about their jurisdiction. I mean, for example, if something is posted um, after school hours from a different computer, how far can the school reach? What well, is I their ju- well? I was going to say, what is their decision. jurisdiction? You know, yeah. what? Hold, just hold your thoughts. But I was just going to say, what is their jurisdiction? I think today schools feel like they're under a microscope. So, but 
Hold your thoughts and I'd like to have your response. You're tuned into 411 Teen. We're going to take a brief break. Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. I'm talking with Dr. Devorah Heitner, author of Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. Devorah's approach is based on the idea of mentoring over monitoring. She helps parents overcome the instinct of control and monitor to support teens and tweens building a sense of self. Devorah, I had to um, interrupt you. You Did you want to continue your thoughts? Yeah, so we were talking about, you know, when schools have these issues, like mm-hmm. what is their jurisdiction? And, right. you know, the Supreme Court has, has given us some indication that schools have, you know, relatively little ability to kind of legislate around what kids say when they're not at school. And yet at the same time, what kids say really does affect mm-hmm. other kids at school, even if they're saying it in a group text or social media outside of school. So you know, I don't have easy answers to that. I mean, I, I do think in the case of, you know, the 2021, I think it was the Levy decision. Um, you know, I do think yeah. the school had overreached there, but that's probably more than we want to get into for the mm-hmm. podcast. I, I mean, I, I do, I, I think that was a weird case where, you know, the school really went after some speech that should have been left alone. But I do think schools end up getting involved, at least at a skill level, where school is being made to feel less safe. If a kid targets a group of people, you know, with hate speech, or if a kid says something specific about a classmate or a teacher, that changes the safety of that school environment for the people who are mentioned. So, I do think schools need to proactively, even before these things happen, work with students mm-hmm. to help prevent some of these incidents Indeed. by teaching kids that their words matter and that they're accountable for what they say and reminding all of us that there's other human beings on the other end of these screen-based interactions. You know, like it's not just, you're not just typing into your computer, there, that's people out, mm-hmm. out there. And, and that's think, kind of a helpful reminder. I was going to say, I think that's one of the impacts of just the way that we talked about earlier that they communicate. I mean, they don't see, they don't um, have that visual component. Uh, they don't hear, so they don't have that. And they don't know, um, and may- maybe they are insensitive to what their comments, uh, the co- the negative negativity that their comments may have. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we build more respect for kids' privacy? And I, I'm talking, when I say this, I'm thinking about, you know, talking about how parents um, will go on social media. And sometimes parents themselves can cause more problems. Um, Absolutely. I think parents <laughs> need to think very carefully about what they're sharing about mm-hmm. their kids and make sure that their kids are okay with it, especially with teenagers. I would never share about a teenager without their permission. Teenagers are very sensitive to the ways their narratives are being shaped and who they're being shared with. So it's it's incredibly important for the trust between adults and kids for parents to get permission before they share anything about their kids. And if in doubt, just don't share it out. You know, if it could be embarrassing, even if it's something you think is really great, like they just like, you know, won an award or something, it still could feel like bragging to your child. So again, if in doubt, don't put it on social media. You can always share it with the grandparents. That's a good audience, right? They'll be happy to see anything and 
that's more private. Most kids won't object to something like that being shared, you know, in, in the immediate family. One of the, the um, items you emphasized is that um, how kids, helping kids understand the difference between friends and followers. Would you share some of that for the listening audience now? I think it was a powerful statement. Yeah, I think we want to help kids navigate, you know, the fact that you can see other people's numbers is so weird, right? Like I mm -hmm. knew I wasn't a popular kid in elementary or middle school or even high school, but certainly in those, you know, first eight years of school, I didn't have a ton of friends, but I didn't have to walk around with that number like on my t-shirt. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really tough for kids to sort of see those numbers played out. And even as adults, like even as an author, like I can see my Amazon rank, I can see how many followers I have. And it's, it's a head trip even for me as an adult, but for kids, I think it's a lot because they're, what other kids think of you is so crucial to your wiring, to your developmental brain when you're a teenager. So it's really important that we help kids counterbalance that knowledge of the numbers with, with a conversation about the quality of relationships. It's much more important to have one really good friend that's a reciprocal friend that really shows up for you, that you care about and they care about you and you're happy to see each other. Like one friend is such an incredible thing in this life. And we know from the mental health research that kids do need to have one friend. They don't need to have a million friends, right? If you have a million friends, that's great, but not every kid needs that or wants that. Um, it's much more important to look at the quality of the relationships and the supportiveness and, and friendliness, if you will, of your friends versus you can have a million followers and still be very lonely. And all a follower has done for you is press a button. You know, they've literally just like touched the surface of their device. So that's very minimal, right? Mm -hmm. And that you could follow somebody mm -hmm. barely know. I follow sometimes people and then I'm like, wait, later I'm looking at them. I'm like, why am I following them? <laughs> um, well, so I, I think it's important. Mm -hmm. it, well, and it's important for them to kind of develop an independence um, and not be a follower but kind of do their own thing. Do you have suggestions as to how to get them there? Yeah, I think a huge thing is making sure that they have efficacy in their own lives, that if they're watching YouTube videos, you know, on cooking, they know how to cook dinner, that they have a sense of how to solve problems. If they're lost, you know, do they have a solution other than Life360 or a mapping program? Just giving them experiences where they solve their own problems and they feel effective in the world and giving them chores and community service and, and ways to be helpful in the community to younger people, to older people in your family. That's a way that we all feel like we matter and we're important in our world versus just being able to measure these external validations like likes or followers. What are your thoughts about, I guess, the digital divide? Um, how, do, how should it be? Do you have any suggestions as to how it should be addressed? I know UNICEF. I mean, I think communities that are doing free Wi-Fi are, are doing a good thing. Like I know our school district has free Wi-Fi because during the pandemic and remote school, so many kids didn't have good Wi-Fi at home and they mm -hmm. just made that available for free. And I think that was helpful. I think schools making devices available to everyone is mostly a good thing. I do think that they could come with a little more parent education about how to supervise and support and mentor around that device. But I do think schools giving kids devices is an equalizer in terms of the digital divide. Okay. Um, share some of the diverse risk and harms um, that may be associated with digital technology. And by that, I'm thinking about the 
exploitation, the sexual abuse, the cyberbullying, because these are what make parents cringe. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think kids can be, you know, harassed and threatened. They can end up in conversations with people they shouldn't. They can, you know, if they're older teenagers, sometimes get on dating apps that really should be 18 plus, and they, there's no real age verification on the internet. So they can see pornography. I mean, we know all of that can be very harmful. Uh, it's not surprising that parents are nervous. And I'm not yeah. suggesting that, again, that we should just give, you know, every 10 or 12 year old a phone and just walk away and hope for the best. When I say mentoring over monitoring, I think mentoring is actually a lot more work than monitoring. I think the problem with monitoring is like, you put some app on your kid's phone and you think you know what's going on and you don't even know that they've disabled it. So that's why I think mentoring is more important where you're in conversation with your ch children about their experiences online so that if someone is harassing them or saying inappropriate things or threatening to share an inappropriate photo of them, that they can come to you. Because what you want is to have that relationship of trust where your kids can come to you about anything. I We touched on this earlier, but I wanted to... I got an email here and I wanted to ask you to elaborate a little bit more because we know that it shouldn't happen, that college admission teams really should not be looking. They're, I don't think that they're actually looking to find reasons not to admit students. No, they have How so much to do and that? so many thousands of applicants there. I mean, honestly, a lot of it is a numbers game and, you know, the vast majority of students get very minimal, you know, minutes of consideration and it just, you go in the yes pile or the maybe pile or the no pile and that's it. It's not like they're spending hours doing a deep dive, like, oh, what did Devorah post on Snapchat in eighth grade? <laughs> yeah, but, but that, it seems that that gets a lot of attention. So how much are you aware of how often this is actually happening? It's very infrequent. And it, like I said, when you're talking about the student you worked with, it may mm -hmm. be that someone in her life that felt offended by her post chose to share that with an admissions office. That's mostly the way that would happen. Or sometimes a recruited athlete will get a little more scrutiny here. A kid maybe getting a big scholarship that's, you know, maybe tied to their character. That kid might get a little more of a, a look than, you know, sort of a regular applicant. I Where I see this come up more is honestly with people in, in their 20s and beyond looking at jobs. You know, if you're mm -hmm. looking at a job, you, you know, when, when you apply to University of Florida or Georgetown or Duke or Berkeley, you know, you're one of thousands and thousands right. um, and they're going to admit hundreds and hundreds. Right. And so the numbers are on your side in terms of like they, they probably don't have time to do that deep dive. If you're up for a job as, you know, an editor of a newspaper or a CEO or any kind of visible job, especially where your character might come into question that's a more likely scenario where someone might look at, you know, what are your old tweets saying? What are your Facebook posts? What have you said on LinkedIn? That's even there. It's not going to be the primary way they're going to investigate you. But yeah, if you're out there with something really weird or, you know, unprofessional or problematic on a mm -hmm. public site, that's, that could be more of a problem in the job market. So I think it's fair to let kids know that. I just think we need to talk with kids more about the immediate reputation issues. Like, if you're on that seventh grade group text saying unpleasant things, mm -hmm. very likely somebody's mom or dad is looking at that group text and maybe having thoughts about you. And that's, you might not get invited to that kid's birthday party. And so I think it, it's fair to give kids a sense of what the reputational consequences could be, but we want to be more accurate. Well, in these last few minutes that we have remaining, I'd like to ask you to ask us to really look at, at, um, the impact that digital connections have on mental health 
and and physical health. Um, what have you seen? I think that for many kids, their digital connections can be have a positive impact on mental health, and some of the time can be negative. And the tricky thing is some kids may have both. You know, there mm-hmm. may be a situation where they're experiencing some negativity or harassment, bullying in one setting, and then another setting is, you know, a place of joy for them. So it's really tricky because you could say, oh, just unplug. But, you know, what if like a huge portion of your social life is there? So, I mean, it, it really is that this is why I want the apps to get better at responding when we, you know, when we hear problems. Um, this is why I want the apps to be more responsive to take down notices from schools and parents and kids, because there are situations that are harmful, but kids shouldn't have to completely leave social media or leave the internet to get away from them. That The apps themselves should be more responsive to our complaints and, you know, notifications. Do you have any, in addition to your book, which I should have you share with us right now, where one can get this book before we close, Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World by Devorah Heitner. Um, Would you share where folks can get this book? Absolutely. You can get it anywhere that books are sold. So that's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your independent bookstores, bookshop.org, Target. You really can get this book anywhere. And also your local public library. Okay. As we look at at mental health, though, um, suggestions you may offer in social sharing or identity, sense of identity or self-esteem, because this is something that I think predators on the net focus on. I think that's true. I think the most vulnerable kids are the kids whose parents are less available or mm-hmm. where there's not, you know, a, a strong caregiver in kids' lives. That said, I'm not blaming parents whose kids have been targeted because there are certainly, of course, plenty of parents who are very attentive who've still had kids run into trouble. But I'm saying that if a if a predator knows, you know, are, are thinking about targeting someone, if they know that the parents aren't attentive or that the kid is in a situation where they're more vulnerable and has less adult support, that's, you know, maybe a kid who's more likely to be targeted. Um, And predators have ways of, you know, kind of figuring that out. But it's really tricky. Um, I think we just need to make sure kids know that they can always come to us. We want kids, if they're playing games like Roblox, where they may be playing at a young age with strangers, maybe to be Mm -hmm. playing with no headphones on so we can hear the conversations. And we want to accustom kids to being in conversation with us about who they're connecting with and make sure they know that they're empowered to cut off a connection at any time. It's not rude. It's totally fine. If someone's asking you questions that are too personal or anything else, you can disconnect from them. Okay. Any recommendations in addition to your book that you may offer for parents as far as resources? That's a great question. I mean, I think that Common Sense Media and Media Smarts Canada are both good resources in terms of just looking up apps. Um, I also Mm -hmm. think that, you know, young adult books are such a great source for kids right now to learn about what's going on in the world. So I love some of the kind of young adult TikTok accounts where you can hear kid book reviews. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, older kids in your family may be a really good resource. So say if you have, you know, middle schoolers, but your siblings have older kids, you know, talk to your nieces and nephews about some of these apps that your kids are asking for and ask them to give you the 411. Okay. Any, we're at our last couple of minutes. Um, any words of wisdom you may wish to share before we close 
I may have any particular subject that you think is extremely important that I may have neglected to to talk about. Maybe I've left Maybe out. Maybe we want to let our kids in on our own experiences with social media, including when we feel left out or when we have a hard time with it, mm-hmm. so that they can understand and learn from our experiences. And so they can understand, too, that they're not, you know, there's nothing wrong with them if they're having a hard time, that it's, you know, we all run into challenges. Okay. Well, I think that covers it. There's nothing else you want to share. Um, did I create a good, a thorough picture? Anything lacking? I think you did. I thought <laughs> that you, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to. I'm, Such an attentive read of the book. I thought it was a great conversation, and I really appreciate getting a chance to talk with you. Yeah, yeah, I did read the book. I I thought it was excellent. You know, um, for the listening audience, I strongly recommend it. Um, and I just want to say a couple of things about the digital divide myself, and that is that the digital divide is substantial. There are 346 million youth who are not online. Um, this particularly affects African uh, students. They're the most affected. 60% of them are compared to 4% in Europe. Um, young people lack digital school skills, and they live in remote areas, and therefore they speak a minority language. And I think that we need to indeed be really sensitive um, to them um, about this. These benefits can include things like access to education, training, and jobs. If they have this digital divide lesson, you will see some changes there. Um, To my listening audience, it's time out for this edition of 411 Team. Um, Dr. Devorah Heitner, Heitner, thanks so much. I cannot express how much uh, we appreciate your, your insight and your expertise. I think the information you've shared has been invaluable. She's the author of Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. Much appreciation to my listening audience for your time and your ear. This is Dr. Liz Hollyfield inviting you to tune in next week. Same time, same place to get the 411 on 411 team. Four One One Team was produced by Dr. Liz Hollyfield. Technical assistance was provided by Evan Rossi. If you would like to participate in the 411 team or have suggestions for discussion topics, call 850-645-7200. You can listen to previous episodes of 411 Team at wfsu.org.